We come this evening to look once more at the sixth verse in the seventh chapter of this epistle of Paul to the Romans. The sixth verse in the seventh chapter. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We come back to this verse for the second time because it is one of these great and comprehensive statements which is quite pivotal in the understanding of the Apostle's argument and particularly at this point at which we have arrived. The Apostle here is giving what we can well describe as his final answer in general, to the criticism that was so constantly brought against his preaching, namely that his preaching of justification by faith only could but lead to immorality and antinomianism and a departure from the holy life. That was the charge that was everywhere following the preaching of this great apostle. So he has been dealing with it in the whole of chapter 6, and here he specifically takes up this whole question of the relationship of the Christian to the law. And as we saw last Friday evening in doing so, he gives us again one of these magnificent and perfect descriptions of the glorious character of the Christian life. The Apostle's point is this, that far from this preaching leading to that loose, godless kind of living, there is nothing which guarantees godliness and holy living save this message. Nothing else can do it. He is concerned to show that the law, an attempt to live the law in and of itself, far from helping us in living the godly life, is an actual hindrance. He's established that in verse 5. Its effect is that it inflames the motions of sin and they begin to work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. There is only one way of really leading this holy, this godly life which is pleasing in God's sight, and that is the method, the way that has been introduced by the Christian gospel. That is why he said away back in the 16th verse of the first chapter, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Here, he says, is a righteousness from God which is revealed from faith to faith. The whole object of the gospel is to produce righteous and holy people. In other words, his argument is that this kind of life can only be lived on condition that we have received an entirely new life. Now, I'm simply reminding you of what we said at greater length last week. But now, he says, we have been delivered from the law, and we are dead to that in which we were held, namely the law again. And that is why there is the possibility of living this new life. We have to be freed from the crippling, deadening effect of the law, before we can possibly bring forth fruit unto God. 
And that is the thing in which he is rejoicing here. But now, he says, we are in a position to do so. We've finished with all that which held us down and which aggravated our problem. And we have entered into an entirely new life. Now, we are considering, therefore, at the moment, the contrast which the Apostle puts before us between this new life and the old life. And we've dealt so far with the general differences. And there were two main differences, that this is indeed new, and the other was old. It was dying and old, this is new. But the second thing was that this is life in the spirit, whereas the other was a life lived in the realm of writing, letter, law. And you remember we emphasized that, that this is the essential thing about the Christian life. It is a life lived in the realm of the Holy Spirit. That is what makes us Christians. We are no longer in the flesh. We are no longer under the law. We are in the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit. We are no longer natural men. We are spiritual men. We are no longer carnal. We are spiritual Everything in this life is in the realm of the Spirit. I indicated that we pray in the Spirit, we think in the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit. The whole of this life is a life which is lived in the Spirit. But now we come to the particular differences. Those are the two big general differences. We must now look at this in detail. Because the Apostle here is being very practical. This isn't something theoretical. This is something essentially practical. You see, the charge which is brought against him was a practical charge. What these opponents were saying was something like this. Ah, oh, they said, this preaching of grace and this preaching of justification by faith, it sounds very wonderful, and of course it pleases people. Ah, oh, they said, yes, but the question is, what does it lead to in practice? That's the test. What's it like in practice, in ordinary daily living? Very well, says the Apostle. I'm prepared to meet you on your own ground. I'm prepared to show you that it is because this and this alone leads to this practical daily living of holiness that I'm preaching it and I'm rejoicing in it. So that what we are going to look at now is not something theoretical. It is indeed the most practical consideration which is possible to us. And you remember the big contrast is this, that we should serve, we should slave. That's the meaning, we should slave. Not in the oldness of the writing, but in the newness of the Spirit. The Apostle uh, he obviously regards this uh, distinction as a, a very important one and a very vital one. And it's something that is emphasized frequently in the New Testament. You get exactly the same contrast worked out in considerable detail in that third chapter of this apostle's second epistle to the Corinthians, which we read at the beginning. What he's doing in that chapter is to compare and to contrast life under the oldness of the writing and life in the newness of the Spirit. He glories and boasts of the fact that he is a minister of the new covenant. Not the old, but the new. Not the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the spirit. And he works out a comparison which we are now going to follow. 
But if you will find exactly the same thing done in the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 8, where the author of that epistle again draws his contrast between the old covenant which God had made with the children of Israel through Moses and the new covenant which he has made through Jesus Christ. And he there, again, and I shall quote some of his statements, is making this selfsame point. Here, then, is a very crucial verse. And in a way, I'm very glad that we are pausing at this point. Here is, in a sense, the great assertion of the apostle in this epistle. As I indicated last week, the remainder of this chapter is merely a digression to deal with difficulties that have arisen in people's minds. Now, this is the important thing. The remainder is a mere digression. He just has to answer an objection in passing, and then he'll take it up again at the beginning of chapter 8 and go on and develop it. But this is the essential statement. Now then, what are these differences in detail between life lived in the spirit and that old way of living according to the writing and under the law and in the flesh? Well, here are some of them. First, it is all the difference between an external and an internal relationship to the law of God, or if you like, to morality. Now, that's the first distinction. The characteristic of the old was this. You noticed how Paul puts it there in that third chapter of Second Corinthians. He says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, You see, before, it was, as it were, a writing with ink. But it's no longer that. It's a writing with the Spirit, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone. Again, it's something outside you. Well, where's the writing now? Oh, in fleshy tables of the heart. The old law was something outside the men. Written on stones, written with ink external, something you looked at with your physical eyes, that's no longer the position. It is now something that is engraven and written and implanted in the fleshy tables of the heart, in the very center of the personality, in the deepest recesses of our being. We are no longer looking out at something. We are considering something that is already within us and working within us as a principle. Well, but listen to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews putting it in chapter 8, where he rarely is quoting what Jeremiah had said in the 31st chapter of his prophecy. Here is the crucial verse. God says that he's going to make a new covenant. Not the old covenant, he said, that I made with your fathers, but a new covenant. What are the characteristics of the new covenant? Well, here is the great characteristic. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts. Now before, you see, he put the laws on tables of stone, which he handed to Moses, and Moses brought them down to the people. I'm not going to do that, he says, the next time. I'm going to put my laws into their minds, and imprint them, write them in their very hearts. Now this is, of course, a fundamental distinction between the two. 
Before a man becomes a Christian, he is always trying to conform to a standard and a pattern that is outside himself. But to be a Christian means this, that the standard is inside you. Of course, in a sense, it's still outside you. But the important thing is that it's now inside you as well. You read it outside you in the Word, but it's in your mind and in your heart. You're not looking out, but you're aware of this thing which is within. You don't have to be persuaded to look at that that's outside you. There is something within you that's calling your attention to a principle that is indeed right in the center of your personality. The apostle puts that, if you like, in this way, in writing to the Philippians in the second chapter and verse 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, inside you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, you see, the apostle says, now, he says, we have become dead to the law, and we rejoice in this, we are delivered from the law, being dead to that which formerly held us out. Why? Well, for this reason, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the writing. It's within us, in our minds, in our hearts. Secondly, that of necessity leads to this. And it's the point that he works out at great length in the third chapter of Second Corinthians. This newness of spirit, this new life in the spirit means that we've got an understanding now which we didn't have before. I mean an understanding of the law and its purpose and everything that is true of it in the economy of God. What was the trouble with the people under the old dispensation? Well, he says the trouble was their, the veil was over their hearts. That's the trouble with people who are under the law. The people who are in the flesh. There they are Sunday by Sunday, he says, reading the law of Moses, but they don't understand it. There is a veil over their hearts. Their minds were blinded. So that though they are studying it and they regard it as very important and their teachers spent the whole of their lives in expounding it, making comments upon it, collating these, gathering them together. They had their traditions, which you read so much about in the Gospels. They were living, as it were, for the law, but they never understood it. They didn't. There was this veil over their hearts and over their faces. They lacked an understanding. But, says the apostle, when it turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And they begin to understand. Now, this is again a crucial point. The trouble with a man who is not a Christian is that he lacks a fundamental understanding of this life that God would have us live. He doesn't see why one should live it, nor what its purpose is. He's got no conception of God's purpose with respect to men. He knows nothing about God's great scheme and plan and purpose of salvation. He doesn't see that. Here were these people reading the Old Testament and they saw nothing of this at all. That was why, you see, they misinterpreted it. And they thought, ah, if we just carry this out, and they persuaded themselves that they did because they misunderstood it, we will satisfy God. They never saw the meaning of the law. Never. They never knew that it was but our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. They never saw that its main function was to bring out the exceeding sinfulness of sin. They never understood that by the law is the knowledge of sin. They thought they could justify themselves by the law. They completely misunderstood it. There was a veil over their hearts. 
There was a covering over their faces. Their minds couldn't function truly. That's the oldness of the writing. But the moment a man comes to the spirit, the veil is taken away and he sees and he understands and it revolutionizes his whole position. Very well, there's the second thing. Let me come to the third. And these follow, you will see, the one from the other. The next thing is that a man begins to see now this vital distinction between observing the mere letter of the law and being concerned about the spirit of the law. Now, there is a great distinction. That was the whole problem with the Pharisees and scribes and doctors of the law. They were only interested in the letter of the law. They had never understood that what really matters essentially in the law is the spirit that is involved. Now, the supreme commentary on that, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, and especially the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. That is devoted almost entirely from verse 17 to the end to an exposure of this false attitude of the Jews and their teachers, religious teachers, to the law of God. They, for instance, said, if you don't actually murder a man, you're not guilty of murder. But our Lord shows them very clearly that that's only the letter, but that the law is concerned about the spirit. If you say, Raka, to your brother, or if you say, thou fool, you are guilty of murder. And likewise, you remember, he works it out in terms of adultery and so many other matters. Going the second mile, throwing in the cloak also. It's a question of loving, he says. Love your enemies. They'd never understood that principle. They'd always regarded it in terms of the external letter only. And they'd never realized that the great thing about the law is the principle, the spirit that is in it. Now, the apostle here and there admits all this about himself. For instance, in this very chapter we are dealing with, we shall find in verses 8 and 9 and so on, that he admits it here. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. He says virtually the same thing in Philippians 3, in his passage of autobiography there. You see, what he never understood was this, and the Jews didn't understand it, that the law says thou shalt not covet. It isn't enough that you don't do things. Do you desire them? Do you sin in your imagination, in your mind, and in your heart? Do you covet? Concupiscence, that's it. This desire after things, that in the sight of God is sin. God seeth the heart. You, said our Lord to the Pharisees, you'll find it in Luke 16, 16, you are they which justify yourselves before men, but God seeth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. God reads and is concerned about the heart. So that when these people came to our Lord one day and said, Which is the first and the chiefest commandment of the law? Now they said, We'll catch him. This is the question. Of all these 613 rules and regulations, which is the chiefest? And he exposed their utter ignorance and blindness by saying, Listen, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul 
and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first and the chiefest commandment of the law. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The law is not a matter of a number of rules and regulations. It isn't a mere matter of letter. It's the spirit. Now, they'd never seen that. But the moment a man comes into the realm of the spirit, he sees it at once. And he sees at once that all his former morality is but as filthy rags. It's dung and refuse, that old righteousness which he used to boast so much of. It's of no value at all. Once he realizes the spiritual character of the law, its positive character, he sees how hopelessly mechanical and superficial was his former external correctness which might still leave his heart a sink of iniquity. And he sees it was of no value at all in the sight of God. It's only the man who's in the spirit who sees this. That's your whole trouble with your moralist, with your merely good men, even as it was with these Jewish teachers. They have never realized that. The moment a man sees that, he's already in the realm of the spirit, because he's utterly condemned and he's forced to seek his salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But come, let me come to the fourth point, which is this one. The difference between a man living this new life in the Spirit and the man formerly living his life in the writing, under the law, and in the flesh, is that he's got an entirely new motive in his life, and a new motive for his good and righteous living. What was his old motive? Well, here it was. It was fear of God. That was one motive. Fear of God. He tried to keep the law because he was afraid of God. He'd have been very glad to hear that there wasn't a God. But as there is a God, well, it's the essence of wisdom to try and keep on the right side of him. Fear of God. That's the motive. Self-preservation. Self-interest. There are many people today who are trying to live a good life simply because they're afraid of hell. Afraid of God and the judgment. If only God and the spiritual realm could be dismissed. If only somebody could prove that when a man dies that is the end, you'd see the difference in their conduct. They're living a life of fear. It's self-preservation, self-interest. Yes, and even at its best and highest, even when the fear motive is not so prominent as it isn't in the case of many so-called intellectuals today. These people who say they have no interest in Christian dogma and doctrine, but who are very interested in morality for the sake of morality, what is their motive? Well, their motive is self-satisfaction. And, of course, it's a very common motive. They want to keep up their own standards. They want to satisfy their own conception of a moral code. They want to live on good terms with themselves, as they say. As one of them put it recently, morality is a man's responsibility for himself. This is self-satisfaction. And, of course, it was the whole trouble with the Jews. The apostle will tell us in the tenth chapter of this great epistle, in verse 3, they, he says, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. 
He says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They were working very hard. They were trying to produce righteousness. But he says it's their own righteousness. They were very proud of it. They were very pleased with themselves. Look at the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 as touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. How proud he was of his righteousness and of his keeping of the laws. He'd misunderstood it. Exceeding all my contemporaries, he tells the Galatians in the first chapter, in this matter of zeal for the law. And he was pleasing himself. And he was very pleased with himself and very self-satisfied. Of course. That's always the Pharisee. And our Lord has given us the final picture about all this. In Luke 18, the two men who go up to the temple to pray, one a publican, one a Pharisee. And do you remember the Pharisee walking right up to the front and saying, I thank thee, O God, that I am not as other men are, and especially this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give a tenth of my goods uh, to the poor. How supremely self-satisfied this man is. Doesn't ask God for pardon, forgiveness. Doesn't ask him for any help or strength. He's self-contained. He's self-sufficient. He's self-satisfied. He's pleasing himself. And his whole motive always is to please himself. That is the characteristic of the old life lived according to the letter under the law and in the flesh. But oh, what a difference. When you come to this new life in the Spirit, Christian people, why are you, why are all of us trying to live this godly, this holy life? Isn't this the answer? We have within us now a desire to please God. And to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are anxious to express our thanksgiving and our praise. We are living the Christian life not because we are afraid of hell any longer. We are not doing it to please ourselves or to attain a standard. And to contrast ourselves with others who are sinners and who are failures. We are no longer interested in self-preservation because we know that we have been kept and preserved and saved. We do it because we know it's the way to show our love to God and our gratitude, our thanksgiving for all that he has done for us. Listen to the apostle putting it again in the second epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 5 this time, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ, he says, constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that in order that they which live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. That's it. That's the argument of the Christian. He says, I was dead. And Christ died for me that I might have life. Why did he do so? Was it in order that I might go on living for myself as I did before? No, no. That I might live for him who gave himself for me and who rose again from the dead. The motive for Christian living, as I'm never tired of repeating and reiterating from this pulpit, is not even to be holy. It is to please God and to glorify his name. 
The chief end of men is to glorify God. And a Christian is a man who's realized that. That's the definition of a Christian. The other man doesn't do that. He lives for his own glory. The first thing that's true about a Christian is that he's now living for the glory of God. Not for himself. This is his grand motive. That God, who in his infinite love and mercy and compassion and kindness has sent his only begotten Son into this world even to die for us. And he has done it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the New Testament way of preaching holiness. That's the motive. So you shouldn't go to your conventions because you've got a problem you want to get rid of. No, no. You want to get rid of yourself altogether. And to lose and forget yourself. Love so amazing, so divine, demands. So you don't appeal to people to come forward to receive something. You face them with a demand of the crucified, dying Christ who's given his life, whose body is broken, whose blood was shed. What for? That we might be rescued and redeemed and might become the children of God. The motive is love, gratitude, praise, thanksgiving unto him who has given himself for us. Yes, the Christian is a man who has an utterly, entirely new motive. It is this love to God and the desire to extol his matchless grace. But come to the fifth thing which follows from that. So this man with this new understanding and this new motive is living the life in an entirely new way in the matter of spirit. The spirit with which he lives is different. What was the old? Well, the old, as the apostle reminds us in the next chapter, in verse 15, the old was this. It was a spirit of bondage. For, he says, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father, the spirit of bondage. And you know that old life is a bondage. That life under the law is a grievous bondage. It's a slavery of the worst type. It's a grievous burden. And any man who's living under the law has got a sense of hopelessness and a sense of despair. That's the spirit in which he's living. He's always under tension and distress and strain. He's trying hard. Can Oh, the bondage of that old life under the law and in the flesh. But it's no longer that. But now, we are living now, he says, and doing our work in the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What does he mean? Well, it's this, you see. There's no bondage in the Christian life. Why? Well, here's one good reason. This is true of every Christian. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. The other man doesn't hunger and thirst after righteousness. He's trying to live that good life, as I say, because he's afraid of God and afraid of hell, and because he doesn't want to suffer, and because of this pride. But he doesn't really hunger and thirst and long after righteousness. He knows nothing about that, but the Christian does. You can't be a Christian without that being true of you. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then John, in his first epistle, chapter 5, you see, he adds to this and he says, And his commandments are not grievous. 
His commandments were very grievous to the men before he became a Christian. It was a burden, as Peter put it on one occasion, uh, which it was a yoke and a bondage that was too heavy to be borne. But John says his commandments are not grievous. That's how we know that we are Christians. We know we've passed from death to life in this way. We love his commandments. Now they're no longer a burden. They're no longer grievous. They're no longer a terrible task. That's the sort of man I'd like to be now. So it's no longer grievous to me. It isn't against the grain. And then he adds to that. Did you notice how he puts it there in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 17? The Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Translate that, if you like, like this. Where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. It's the same thing exactly. Oh, yes, when you're in the realm of the Spirit, there is liberty. There's no liberty there. The taskmaster is watching you. You're under the eye of your great taskmaster, and you're afraid, and you're working, and you're sweating, and you're fasting. Luther, before his conversion, in the cell as a monk. But the moment you become a Christian and enter the realm of the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You're set free from the shackles that wherein we were held, we are dead to it. And you're a free man and able to use all your powers. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. You're beginning to enjoy the glorious liberty of the children of God. And think of the encouragements the Christian has got. There were no encouragements in that old life. That's why we were so dispirited. But think of the encouragements in this new life. Here's the first thing. Knowledge of sins forgiven. God said in the new covenant, which he was going to make, he told it to the people through Jeremiah. It's quoted there in Hebrews 8. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. I know of nothing which is so liberating as to know that all my past sins are forgiven. I'll go further. That all my future sins are forgiven. It's the most liberating thought you'll ever have. If you are worried about forgiveness and worried about your whole standing and position, it depresses you. It keeps you down. You're uncertain and you're in this depressed state and Satan has an advantage over you and down you go still further. There is nothing more wonderful than to know that our sins are forgiven and we know it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But come to the second thing. We've already been considering it. Let me give you a summary of all we've been saying since last October. We are dead to sin. We are dead to the law. Yes, we are dead to death. Do you remember it back there in the sixth chapter? In this, these verses 9 and 10? Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. What's true of him is true of you. He's died once and for all. He'll never die again. Death hath no more dominion over him. And we saw that it has no dominion over us. Here's the liberty of the children of God. I am dead to the dominion of sin. I am dead to the dominion of the law. I am dead even to the dominion of death. As a Christian, I'm simply going to fall on sleep. I'm in Christ. 
I shall never die. I'll never know the meaning of that second death. Out of the dominion of sin and the law and of death. Here's the new spirit in which one lives. Here is the liberty of the children of God. But come, let's go along. God has also said to us, here is a part of the new covenant. I will be to them a God. And they shall be to me a people. He has put it like this. I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Do you know anything more wonderful than that? Aren't we all encouraged by privileges? Nelson says on the day of Trafalgar, England expects that every man this day will do his duty. What a motive, what an encouragement. God says, I am your God and you are my people. Remember that and live like that. There's no encouragement greater than that. But he tells us further his great purposes with respect to us. All his planned and purposed. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. But if you want it at its very highest and best, I take you back to chapter 5 and verse 10. And here it is. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved in his life? That's it. He's put us into the life of his Son. And if we're in the life of his Son, it's certain, it's absolute, it's guaranteed. We shall be saved. Nothing can stop it. And then think of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mustn't keep you. But you know this verse is so rich it could almost keep us till midnight, couldn't it? Let me just remind you what we've seen in verse 4 of this 7th chapter of the Lord Jesus Christ as our husband, that we might be married to another, even unto him that is raised from the dead. Jesus, my husband, shepherd, friend, my guardian, my guide, he's everything, he's the all and in all. What an encouragement. The other man knows nothing about these things. And then think of the hope of glory. And the certainty of getting there. Being therefore justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's no encouragement beyond that. Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So this is the spirit now in which the new man, this Christian man, living his life in the spirit, is facing the problem of morality and the law of God and the holy life. Full of liberty, a new spirit of liberty and of rejoicing and of hope and of thanksgiving and of praise. And that leads me to the sixth big difference, which is this. The new ability and power which he has and of which he is aware. That other man in the old life was left to himself. What the law could not do, says Paul in the third verse of the next chapter, in that it was weak through the flesh. God gave the Ten Commandments and said, if you keep them and can keep them, you'll save yourselves by doing so. Nobody could do it. 
All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Why? Man was left to himself and he couldn't do it. He is too weak. But what are these new men in the spirit? Well, he's got new life. He's a partaker of the divine nature. He has received new life in Christ. Born again of the Spirit. Oh, let me use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 3 again, verse 6. The letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. That's what we need. We need life and vigor and power. We were dead. How could we live it? We need life. The Spirit giveth life. Not only that, the Spirit continues to work within us. Go back again to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How can I do it? Why impose such a task upon me? The thing's impossible. All the patriarchs have failed. The children of Israel have failed. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How can it be done? For because it is God that worketh in you. He's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And as the result of the Spirit within us and the new nature on which he operates, we are able to do things that were unthinkable before. Listen to Paul in the next chapter, verse 13, saying, If you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. You ask a man who hasn't got the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the body. And if you want to know the answer, you've but to read the lives of many of the so-called Catholic saints and others who'd never seen the truth of justification by faith only, but who segregated for themselves from society, put on camel hair shirts, and half-starved themselves. They were trying to mortify the deeds of the body, and the more they tried, the more conscious they were of them. You can go out to the world, but you take the deeds of the body with you, in your mind and imagination, and you can't get rid of the deeds of the body, but through the Spirit you can. Here's the new strength. God, says the apostle to Timothy in the second epistle, first chapter, seventh verse, God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and of a sound mind, discipline. Power, love, discipline. Yes, says the apostle in chapter 6, verse 14 of this great epistle, sin shall not have dominion over you. It's all right, says John, again in his first epistle, Fourth chapter, fourth verse. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't be frightened of him. He's a powerful enemy. Yes, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't be terrified. Don't be alarmed. You've got power. You've got strength. You're in the spirit now. Life in the spirit brings all this to you. And so I come to my seventh and my last distinction which has respect to the result of these two lives lived in these entirely different ways. And again, the apostle puts it so perfectly. He says, When we were in the flesh the motions of sin, which were by the Lord, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Yes, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, The letter killeth, and it does kill. That old life is a life of constant struggle and of constant failure, constant defeat. It becomes increasingly difficult. 
As you get older, you find your powers waning and the devil seems to become stronger. Your very physical condition leads to new temptations and sins. It gets worse and worse and you're less and less able. And you feel utterly and completely hopeless. It's a kind of living death. But what of this new life in the Spirit? Well, I can do nothing better than quote 2 Corinthians 3.18. He has said already, you see, where the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit is Lord, there is liberty. And we all, as the result, with open face, beholding, still as only in a glass, but thank God even for that, we all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord. What happens? Who are changed into the same image, into his image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now let me improve on that translation. I've quoted the authorized version. Here's the right way. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are being changed. We are not doing it, it's being done to us. As we behold in the glass the glory of the Lord, as we go on living this life in the Spirit with this new understanding and insight and motive and love and power and all that is so true, as we go on doing that, we are being changed into the image of God's dear Son from glory to glory. It's a progressive life. Better and better Higher and higher, up and up we go, more and more like the blessed Son of God. Don't believe the people who tell you that a Christian on the verge of the grave is in exactly the same position as he was at the beginning. It is nonsense. He is being changed from glory to glory and then to another and on and on progressively. Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Yes, this is the truth, you see. In this life, we can say this. He which hath begun a good work in us, Philippians 1, 6. He which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If you're in the hands of this great potter, if God through his Son and by the Spirit has begun a work in you, he'll never give it up. He'll never leave it incomplete. He'll go on with it. He which has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And on that day, as Ephesians 5 reminds us so gloriously, we shall be without spot, without wrinkle without any such thing, perfect, entire, and complete in him. What shall we say to all these things? There is only one thing I feel that is fitting. Let us say with Jude, now unto him that is able to keep us, he is able to keep us without falling and to present us faultless 
before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy unto the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. O Lord our God, we indeed do come into thy presence to ascribe all praise and might and dominion and majesty and power. Thou alone art worthy to be praised. And we thank thee that thou dost even deign to receive our humble and unworthy praise and thanksgiving. O Lord, open our eyes to the understanding of thy precious, glorious truth. The truth shall make you free. O God, grant that we all may know this. This very truth we have considered together. Grant that we may go out of this service knowing and enjoying the glorious liberty of the children of God and go on in thy strength and power to live this new life in the Spirit to the praise of thy grace and to the glory of thy great and holy name. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us, now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall see him as he is in glory, and be lighted. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.